0: if I like it or not, but forces me to not have a table, so I have to steal Tom's stool. I think the, the other table is nicer than the stool. I don't know. Trying new things. I have two questions I want you to think about this morning. First, what has God called us as believers to do? And then secondly, how are you personally, individually, living that out. See, I believe that when we experience God's grace, we are motivated to action. We are given a desire to serve Him. Now, how that service and action play themselves out in our individual lives changes based on our gifts, talents, skills, and abilities. But as believers changed by God's grace, we should have a desire to, To live for Him, but what does that look like? Uh, If you don't have that desire to serve and act on His behalf, I think there's a bigger and much more serious question that you have to ask: Have you truly experienced God's grace? When we begin our relationship with God, we start off great in the camping in the youth ministry, and well, generally ministry. uh, We use the example of or the uh, illustration of a fire. You're on fire for Christ, right? Jeremiah talks about, not pastor, the prophet. Jeremiah talks about it. I have this fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it, and indeed, I cannot. We have that fire. And generally, when we have these experiences like uh, the students have winter retreat, the women just had if gathering, we have these experiences that light our fire that or that reignite our fire. But we leave, and time goes by, and in the camp world, we call it a spiritual high fades. We get distracted. We get caught up in the minutiae of life the day to day, the tasks, the responsibilities. We get distracted by what I call the boxes and motions of life. We check off boxes and we go through motions. We have jobs, we have families, we have. Organizations we serve, mouths to feed, projects to complete. And somewhere amidst all of that, we have our faith. As believers, we aren't supposed to start with the boxes and motions. We're supposed to start with our faith. Because those, like, the boxes and motions aren't bad things in and of themselves, but they become bad things when we elevate them to the place of God. The way we evaluate this whether everything is we're doing boxes and emotions as number 1 or if God is truly our number 1 priority is by answering the following question. Is your faith the filter through which you interact with the world? Or is the world, your world, the filter through which you interact with your faith? Unfortunately, we mess that up a little bit, and we neglect Christ. We get caught up in our boxes and motions, so much so that Jesus is no longer number one priority, sometimes doesn't even crack the top ten. But you're not the only person to shuffle Your priorities, I do this too, but we are not the only people of God, children of God, who have shuffled our priorities in light of some inconvenience, some busyness, some chaos. Before his time as one of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter was a fisherman. And after a long night of fishing with no luck, he would go ashore and start to clean up, start to pack up from the night. And uh, we're going to be reading here first in Luke 5, starting with verse 1. Our story picks up. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret, he saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, Peter, and he asked him to put it out a little from land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. Now, I don't know if you have ever worked a long shift, a, a rough day, an exhausting day, and now you got to go home and all of the projects, all of your house chores. Um, one of my favorite things that we no longer do anymore um, are our 8-to-8s, eight our all-nighters. We don't do them. By the way, we're not bringing those back. So um, for security and safety and really, really big not because I enjoy—I don't enjoy spending time with middle schoolers at 4 a.m. By the way, they're peaches at that hour. Uh, great. They just have the biggest smiles on their face and love on every, it's just. <laughs> Watch, I'm gonna be told I have to do an all-nighter now. Jeremiah's not here, which means if that happens, it's one of your guys' fault and... Oh, so, one of my least favorite things about those is not the 4 a.m. middle school or fighting. Um, it's actually, it was actually the, the parent who thought it was an 8 to 9 event uh, and having to sit there for an hour after 12 still having, my expectation was 8 and I'm out. Maybe 8.15. Or the, the dad who would woken up a couple hours earlier, had a couple cups of coffee, and wanted to talk to me about everything. Eight o'clock, guy. Come on. No. Sometimes we get exhausted, and the last thing we want to do is our workday to extend. A lot of you, y'all know what I'm talking about. I have a feeling that's where Peter was right here. Just a, a whole night of not catching any fish. Bad day at the office. Now this teacher comes up and says, hey, I'm going to teach from your boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in deep water and let down your nets for a catch. All right, so using the boat to teach from is one thing. Just got done with a long day of fishing He he was cleaning his nets, so he's already, like, done for the day. Like, nets are clean, packed up, ready to, oh, now you want me to go do what I just did for hours. No luck, no success. Awesome. Got to imagine, Peter had a great attitude with this. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. Maybe he didn't have a good attitude about it. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, because I am a sinful man. Oh, go away from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. You will be fishers of men. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. Go away from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. Peter says, while he's on his face. Peter encounters Jesus, and instead of Jesus casting him aside because Peter was, in fact, a sinful man, Jesus gave him a mission. Follow me, and you will fish for people. You will catch people. And he did. He left. He left his career as a fisherman and he would spend the next few years walking alongside Jesus, watching him teach and preach, watching him perform miracles, do incredible things. He would see the numbers of followers increase greatly. And periodically, from time to time, Jesus would talk just to the disciples and he'd hint at his impending death. But when he would make those pointed statements about, yeah, I'm going to be I'm going to die. There's going to be a time I'm not with you. Peter would have none of it. And in one of these conversations, Peter boldly tells Christ that although the rest of the disciples may flee, they may scatter, they may run, I will never run from you, Lord. See, pride's an interesting monster because where pride is, humility is soon to follow. Because in that same conversation, Jesus would predict, would tell Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows today. Digging his grave a little bit deeper, he digs his heels in and he says, no, Lord, I would die. I would rather go to jail than deny you. I'm not going to do it. But, Jesus would be taken into custody, and the disciples would, man, they would they were in disarray. They were scattered. They were scared. They didn't know what to do. Not wanting to draw any unnecessary attention to himself, particularly negative attention that Jesus was receiving at this time, Peter did the exact thing that he vowed he wouldn't. That very night, three different people would ask him, hey, do you know the Jesus, hey, you're one of those guys, right? You're from there, so you're with him. And every time, Peter did the exact thing. No, I don't know that man. After the third time, it actually says, as he was speaking, as he was denying Christ, the rooster crows. I was going to do the sound, but spared all of you my rooster impression. You're welcome. <laughs> and the second the rooster crowed, he went outside and wept. Zero in on this because sometimes we read stories like this in the Bible and say, oh, it doesn't apply to me. Oh, I've, that's from that time. Oh, it's different culture. I've never said, I don't know that man. So I've never denied Christ. But you have. And you do, because I have and I do. See, we may not outright say, I don't know Jesus, but we certainly live like it sometimes. Because we get too busy for Jesus. We say, oh, I'll get to it later. I'll read tonight. Maybe next week. I'll go to, oh, I'll skip group tonight. I'll go next week. Skip church. I'll go next week. I have other responsibilities right now. Jesus is in the way of what I want right now. I can't commit to that. It's inconvenient. It's in the way of my job, getting in the way of my hobbies, getting in the way of my relationship, my family. Instead of outright denying Jesus, we often shift our priorities reprioritize the boxes and motions of our life over the things of God. We get busy and pressure gets applied. And much like Peter, our response under pressure is denial. But that's not the end of Peter's story. Actually, we're smack dab in the middle. Because Jesus would ultimately be killed. He would be crucified and buried And Peter had to carry the weight of one of his final actions prior to Christ's death, be denying even knowing who he was until Jesus rose from the dead. Can't talk too much about that because Easter's coming up. I don't want to steal any of Pastor Jeremiah's thunder. But Jesus would raise from the dead three days later. And shortly after, Peter would be having breakfast with Jesus. I could not imagine Peter's situation. Denying Christ, feeling miserable, carrying that burden for a couple days. Then Jesus, while well, he did what he said he was going to do, he rose three days later and now Peter's going to sit around a fire, foot in his mouth and all. Hey, Jesus. I can't imagine Peter started that conversation. I mean, actually, in John 21, that's where we read about this. Starting in verse 15. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Starting, no small talk here. We're diving in. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Jesus repeating this three times is significant. Anytime something is repeated in Scripture, holy, 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 truly, truly, I say to you, all of these, things—they zero in on that. But Jesus is giving Peter the opportunity to reconcile his threefold denial. He denied him three times. Here he's, I love you, Lord, three times. Feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. And it's interesting to note here that in addition to restoring Peter to right relationship with himself, he immediately calls Peter to action. Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. At risk of being a little too forward, some of you need to have a conversation like this with Jesus today. You've lowered him on your priorities. You're leading with your boxes and motions rather than your relationship with Christ. Maybe, like Peter, you're carrying a fair amount of shame. You're carrying burdens you were never meant to carry. You've messed up. You denied Christ with your words, maybe with your actions, maybe with your desires. But just like he was willing to restore Peter to right standing, Jesus can do the same thing for you this morning. Don't leave this room. This building without having that conversation because he will forgive you and he will restore you. Peter is restored yet again, and yet again, the call from God is action. Feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. And in the first few chapters of Acts, we see quite the transformation with Peter's life. It seems as if he's a completely new person, when we truly experience the grace of God, when God reveals himself to us, forgives all of our messiness, and restores us to him, our only response is action. Do you have that desire to act? And are you living that desire out? To evaluate that, we're going to look at what I call the umbrella of personal ministry. Uh, If you were in my discipleship class last fall, you may remember this concept, but it's also printed on the back of your bulletin um, as well. Everything we do to further God's kingdom or to live out this desire for action falls under what I call the umbrella of personal ministry, and I break it down into four categories. First is personal spiritual growth. That's everything you're doing to grow personally. Church attendance, discipleship communities, prayer, reading scripture, all of that. The second is evangelism. And in this context, I say anytime you actively share your faith, it's evangelism. You engage in evangelism. Now, there's such a thing as lifestyle evangelism. Um, if I just, I'm, just gonna, I'm a going to church. I'm doing my thing. I'm at work. I am a good person. I'm living a moral lifestyle. So people will know I'm a Christian by the way I live. Now, that's okay But there's more to evangelism than simply a moral lifestyle. Um, And then finally, the other two categories, we'll get to that some other time. But the other two categories are a couple different types of discipleship um, that I think we're called to engage in. But first, I want to go back to Scripture um, and what the Bible says about discipleship. Matthew 28, you've heard me talk about this. But it's the Great Commission. um, And it's on the screen, I believe. Maybe not. But Matthew 28 starting in verse 16, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me on earth, in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey or observe my commands. And I'm with you always. Based on this command, as well as the, the model throughout all of Scripture, the call to make disciples extends further than a moral lifestyle or volunteering in your church. It's bigger than that. Both great things. Living well, serving your church, great stuff. And they're a part of discipleship, but not completely. Back to the umbrella. I referenced referenced two types of discipleship, micro-discipleship and macro-discipleship. Micro is the hard one because it requires the most work and the most vulnerability. And we don't like being vulnerable. We don't like getting to the nitty-gritty of life. You do you, I'll do me, stay out of my circle, and we'll be fine. But micro-discipleship is an intentional relationship seeking to grow and help someone else grow toward God. So in this relationship with somebody or a couple somebody's not going to be a big group, you're discussing faith and life, you're studying scripture You're confessing sins and struggles and walking with them through these things. Generally, you're only working with one to two people here. Uh, Most often, studying Scripture together, confessing sin, all of those things. Micro-discipleship. Some examples in Scripture of micro-discipleship, I think of um, Samuel and David. I think of David and Jonathan, or David and Nathan. I think of Jesus' relationships with James, John, and Peter. I think of Paul and Timothy. All micro-discipleship-type relationships. And then we get um, macro-discipleship, which is a, like a zoomed-out version of micro-discipleship. You're still an intentional relationship seeking to grow toward God, but with a larger group of people, so the depth isn't there. You're not getting as vulnerable, but you're still studying Scripture, navigating life's issues. I would say the relationship Jesus had with different groups, like some of the disciples, some of his followers, even his relationship with the Pharisees would have been a macro discipleship relationship. He's trying to get them to grow closer to God by going through life and navigating some of these issues. When I taught practical discipleship class, or I teach the middle school discipleship community right now, middle school boys, that is macro discipleship but I have a guy that uh, I spend a significant amount of time with um, at the gym talking about life and faith, talking about Scripture and different theological issues, theological concepts. That is micro-discipleship. The Great Commission is kind of a big deal for Christians. We kind of say that that is like our mission statement in, of the Christian life. We often attribute that, scratch up, But is it the most important thing Jesus said? What is the most important passage in Scripture? Someone asked Jesus that once. In Matthew 22, he's talking to the Pharisees, and an expert of the law pipes up, and he says, Teacher, what is the greatest command in Scripture? What command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and prophets depend on these two commands. We're all familiar with this. We've heard this time and time again. We are to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and Mark adds strength with every fiber of our being. And then love our neighbor as ourselves, Jesus said if we do that, we'll naturally follow every other law, every other rule. Everything we're supposed to do will c- follow if we do those two things. So that's where our focus should be. We have the great commandment, the great, or the great commission. If you have that desire to act but don't know where to start, start there. Focus on that and making disciples. So three things. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Make disciples. Last summer, a group of high school guys came up to me. and They said, Hunter, we want to go camping. We want to go hiking. Let's go, let's take a group of guys up to the Pictured Rocks. I'm all about that. Uh, took a group a couple years prior. They saw that. They saw how great it was. Let's go. Rule of thumb, if teenagers ever come up to you and say, hey, we want to do this, figure out how to make it happen because that's where the micro-discipleship, the macro-discipleship macro can take place. Eighty percent of my discipleship efforts happen outside of the church building, um, most of it outside of a ministry event. But, so they came up to me and they said, how do we do this? And I'm like, consider it done. Anyway, I asked my dad to help out with that because he grew up in that area, his family in Munising, um, and he would be able to add some tour guide element that I wouldn't. But, I had... Some ulterior motives as well. Uh, A bit of a discipleship experiment, if you will. See, I just started to develop, started to develop, must need another cup of coffee. I just started to develop some of this micro-discipleship content for the class. And I needed a little bit of this experiment to, to watch it work. So I said, if I just take my dad and trap him with a bunch of kids that he doesn't know in the woods for four days, let's just see what happens. So I'm like, if I model some of these conversations, some of this micro-discipleship stuff, let's just see if I throw my dad in the mix, what will happen. Y'all, it was Incredible. Because for about a year now, we did it last summer, so just under a year now, I've watched my dad, who didn't know any of these kids before this trip, touch base with them regularly. Know their names, remember their names, know what they're doing, know their passions, their dreams, and ask them, hey, how's that going for you? And we were talking a couple days ago, or a couple weeks ago, me and my dad, because I wanted to get his permission to talk about, I don't talk about people on stage without like saying, hey, can I tell this story? Except I did that to my sister once, um, and she was totally thrown off. And someone after church talked to her about it, and then I had to apologize. And so, so now my rule is, if I'm talking about you, I'll warn you beforehand. <laughs> but I, I was talking to my dad about it. I'm like, hey, I want to tell this. Can I talk about it, blah, blah, blah. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said something in that conversation that struck me. He said, people just need to realize that all they have to do is spend time with these kids. So for the last year or so, I've been talking a lot about uh, moment maximization. I say we need to look at every conversation as an opportunity, to be, an opportunity to be capitalized and a moment to be maximized. Every conversation has an opportunity to be capitalized and a moment to be maximized. This takes intentionality. This takes a new kind of selflessness. It takes humility. Because to do this, your desire for comfort, for power, influence, your self-esteem, all of that has to submit to your desire to love God wholeheartedly, love your neighbor, and make disciples. Your desire to faithfully serve God must be stronger than your desire for comfort. If not, the result will always be some form of complacent Christianity, which is simply living in the boxes and motions of life, worshiping them rather than God. Often I'll reflect to a semester here a couple years ago when I was looking for a teacher for my high school guys' discipleship community. Uh, I mean, I was up here asking for volunteers. I was begging people uh, as they're leaving the church, hey, do you want to teach my high school? No, I wasn't really doing that. But I, was, I couldn't find anybody. And I remember Pastor Jeremiah filled in a week for me. And one of the students asked a couple questions that will stick with me forever. He said, high school guy, teenager, 15, 16 years old, says, why, don't, why doesn't anyone want to teach us? Shouldn't those people, yeah, he called y'all those people. Shouldn't those people be lining up To teach us? See, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to disciple somebody, whether it be micro or macro. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to teach the kids, to teach the students, to teach a discipleship community class, to lead a small group. You just have to spend time with them. Now, the hard part of spending time with somebody is moment maximization. It's hard to view every. Moment as an opportunity to be capitalized. Because it takes intentionality. It takes vulnerability. But all of that comes with time and direction and leading by the Holy Spirit. Discipleship is simple, but it's not easy. And I'd say that if you're not currently making disciples, you may be neglecting one of the biggest commands that we're supposed to live out. But you don't have to stay there. See, I believe that God has not only placed people in your life for you to disciple, but he has also equipped you to do just that. You can make disciples. And if you want to know what that is, Like, I'd love to just sit down and have a conversation with you. I love coffee. Let's go grab coffee and talk about what it would look like for you to make disciples. I'm going to close with one final story. When I started working at Cranhill Ranch... I was the program intern. Um, so the program director kind of sets all of the summer camp stuff up and the winter retreats and creates that plan. But I remember early on in a conversation, having a conversation with the program director, early on in the internship, having a conversation, and he asked me this. He said, why camping ministry? Why do you want to do this with your life? Like, I'm going to give him the best answer ever. So I said, well, I love spending time with campers, and I love watching them experience and grow closer to God. He says, well, I don't know if camping ministry is for you. What? That was the greatest answer to that question ever. He said, I don't spend very much time with the campers. As a matter of fact, during the summer camp week, my, the least amount of my time is spent with campers. Most of my time is spent with the counselors, with the college students that are coming and serving at camp, and in the office, building the program and working out all the detailed stuff for next week. He said, my job's threefold. So, and then a couple years later, I would become the program director, and that's when I would really understand what he was talking about, because my job was threefold. First, create the summer camp program and any other program they did. Second, hire, train, and develop staff to run that program. And third, create the systems and structures so that they can run the program as effectively as possible. And my role today is quite similar, because my job is to create the systems and structures and equip my team and my church to engage in youth ministry, to make disciples of the next generation. It's not my job solely to do this. It's my job to equip people, our church, the BCC family, to do this. Now, I still do that. I still make disciples, and I'm still... But I like to call that creating systems and equipping people, culture curating. I like little buzz phrases like that. It helps me remember them. But I call that culture curation. Yes, I disciple teens, but more importantly, I create the systems and structures so that you can as well. At the beginning of our time together, I asked two questions. First, what has God called us as believers to do? And second, how are you living that out? I think the answer to both of these can be found in the scriptures we read today. First, love God wholeheartedly, every fiber of your being. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. And third, make disciples. Like Peter, sometimes we slip up. Sometimes we allow the boxes and motions to push us away from Christ. But I want you to know today that you are never too far gone. You're never too focused on other things to be brought back. And you are never too distant for Christ to restore you. And as far as discipleship goes, if you're a parent, you got little mini disciples under your roof. Maybe they're not so many. Maybe it's a sibling a spouse a coworker a peer a colleague a teenager in church but if you aren't intentionally making disciples you may need to evaluate this desire to act and your own relationship with god and go from there but all of this starts where peter started on his face acknowledging that we're sinful people and when we acknowledge and repent he's quick to cover us in his grace He's quick to forgive. He's quick to restore. When we truly experience the grace of God, when God reveals himself to us, forgives us, and restores us, our only response is action. Let's pray. God, you are a God of restoration. You are a God who calls and equips. And you are a God who will direct our steps. But our first step needs to be to drop on our face and handle our business with you. So Lord, if today we have some business to handle, some conversations around the fire to have, I pray that we have those conversations before we leave. Because you are a gracious God. and You are quick to forgive. You are slow to anger. So help us. Leave this place with a desire to act, a desire to serve, a desire to love you wholeheartedly, love our neighbor, and make disciples. Thank you that you equip us to do those things. Thank you for who you are. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. All right, church, we love you. Go under the grace of God with peace. Amen.